Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Hey everyone, welcome into the Athletic Baseball Show. Tim McMaster here along with Ken Rosenthal for our mailbag episode. We're coming at you every two weeks during the offseason. Uh, during the season, we do the mailbag where we answer your questions once a week. Right now we're recording on February 14th, two weeks ago when we were last on. We talked about Groundhog Day and the long, cold winter baseball was stuck in. Now it's Valentine's Day and we're waiting for the owners and players to basically kiss and make up. Terrible analogy aside, Ken, you wrote a story this weekend uh, with Evan Drellick. And I mean, to be honest, it was a little bit bleak. Basically, the message was there's no reason to believe that the MLB season is going to start on time. Right. And Tim, actually, the Valentine's Day analogy you just made is not that far off. In my All right, opinion. good. I have often equated this relationship to a bad marriage. People talking past each other instead of to each other and if you look at it that way then yes on valentine's day which is when this was recorded they do need to kiss and make up <laughs> now to your question about the story that evan and i wrote the other day basically evan and i we combine on things all the time and there are times when we have differences of opinion and we kind of came at this story from two different places i came at it from the perspective of someone who had talked to a number of people agents mostly who had said Hey, it's not crunch time yet. These guys, the owners, will not get going until the end of February. That's when we have to have an agreement in that range, late February, early March, to get spring training in and then have the season without missing any games. So they weren't alarmed. At that point, what they were talking about, supposed deadline, was almost, I don't know, three weeks away or so. Evan, on the other hand, who has covered the negotiations more intensely than I have, more involved in the day-to-day of it, sees it as very bleak. And the reason he does see it as very bleak is because he sees such little movement. We get these proposals and counter-proposals, and they're not much different than the previous proposals. There is a little give here and there, and yes, there's progress in certain areas and not others, but I don't know that you can really call what is happening momentum in any stretch of the word. So Evan and I talked and Evan said, hey, it's bleak. And I said, well, there's time. And what we wrote was kind of a combination of that. Yes, there's time. But as the headline said, there's no reason to believe based on what we know now that there is going to be an agreement anytime soon. Can it change? You heard Rob Manfred last week. One proposal can be a breakthrough and make things better and change. But we've yet to see anything close to such a proposal. And Manfred promised that this one would be a good proposal and that, yes, perhaps the union would be more amenable to it. And what was the response that they got? 
that they were underwhelmed, the union was, the players were, by what MLB had proposed quite comprehensively. They hit all the areas that they felt were necessary in a 130-page proposal, but still, we remain far apart. So I will go back to what I said earlier and the argument I made with Evan. There is still time. There's plenty of time, actually. If you need three and a half to four weeks for spring training, get to the late February, make a deal, get a couple of days of cushion in there, we can get the season going on time. That's two weeks away still, at least. But what is the reason to believe that anything will change other than that this sport operates this way all the time? Trade deadline, last minute. Arbitrations, last minute. Draft signings, last minute. So that is the nature of it. I guess kind of the nature of all negotiations to some extent. And maybe that is the hope here. But as Evan has pointed out to me and we pointed out in our story, okay, that's great, but we need to see a little evidence before we get optimistic. One of the examples, I think, that, that was in the story, and but it's been out there as well, is when you talk about the bonus pool that, that both sides are talking about. Um, and how far they've come. They were $95 million apart on the bonus pool. The players proposed $5 million less. The owners proposed $5 million more. That was, you know, so weeks later, they've gone from $95 million apart to $85 million apart. At that rate, we're not going to start the season until August. (laughs) Right. And keep in mind, Tim, this is an important point to make on the bonus pools. It's kind of gotten lost. We've explained it once, I think, in one of our stories, but not repeatedly. The bonus pool discrepancy actually is even greater than you just described because the players are proposing that bonus pool for zero to two-year players because they want arbitration to start after two years. The owners are proposing their bonus pool for zero to three-year players. So the number would be spread over a greater number of players, again, making the discrepancy between the two proposals that much greater. So yeah, you're right. There is slow, slow going right now. Might it increase as we get closer to absolute crunch time? Yes, it might. But what we've also seen is entrenchment by both sides and a lot of frustration, particularly on the player's side, with what they perceive as non-movement. Now, the owners would say that about the players, too. But there have been times, most recently in the last situation when they counter it, and even in this particular situation when they're at this recording considering a counter, there are times when some players have argued that we shouldn't counter at all. It's pointless. And the owners might have the same perspective. So that's where we are. It's not a good place. Can it change? Yes, it can change. But again, I'm not seeing that ray of light that I'd like to see. All right, let's move on to the mailbag where not all the questions are about the lockout, although some are. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. All right, if you want to get involved next week or in a couple of weeks when we're back with the mailbag, you can call us, 646-543-7072. A lot of voicemails this week. We love it. Or email Show at gmail.com. I mentioned the voicemails, Ken. We're going to start there. And this one, I think, is a really good one to start on because all these talks, all these negotiations about the billionaires and the millionaires and everything, sometimes what gets lost is the kids. So let's start with a question about the kids. What's going on, fellas? Uh, my name is Kyle. I have a six-year-old son, and he he loves baseball more than more than anything. 
Um, big Yankees fan. He copies everything Aaron Judge, even when he walks up to the plate and his coach picks games. He, he taps the plate, puts his hand up, does the dirt, you know, he swings and misses, he'll grab dirt and throw it. Anyways, um, it got me thinking, you know, what is baseball doing to, you know, promote the sport and, and grow the game? And is that even something that's being considered in this new CBA? You know, I was looking forward to taking him to opening opening day this year for the first time, and I don't I don't even know if that's going to happen on time, and I haven't really broke the news to him yet. But yeah, I'm just curious what's baseball doing to promote the sport to kids his age and a little older. That's all. Take care, fellas. Kyle, I agree that the sport always could do more to promote itself to young people, and that's an age group where they don't have enough fans, and they realize that. And they have taken steps in recent years to increase their marketing, make things more acceptable or attractive, I guess would be the right word, for younger people, for kids. Now, the greater issue is what a lot of fans perceive as an absolute refusal to acknowledge their interests. And I understand where they're coming from. They are the paying customers. And it sometimes seems, not just to those fans, but to guys like me, that the players and the owners, they're in their own little vacuum. And yeah, they're having their own little dispute and the owners lock out and all that. But that dispute is taking place in a larger context in the middle of a pandemic still at a time when the entertainment options are greater than ever before, certainly greater than they were in 1994-95. And there is going to be damage here if games are lost. I don't know that there will be much damage if games are not lost, if the season can it begins on time. I think that at that point, fans will be like, fine, whatever, they're done, let's go. But if games are lost, yes, I believe there is going to be a lot of discontent. And Jason Stark and I, in our story last week, outlining what a wild spring training it would be, the story ended with us saying there needs to be an outreach to fans when this is all over. They need to acknowledge that this is something that was unpleasant for fans that should never have happened and really need to go forward in a way that is positive and, by the way, need to make the product more attractive. That's an issue that's not even coming to the surface in these negotiations. That's for another time. Wonderful. So, yes, Kyle, I'm with you, and I hope your boy does get to see opening day, and I hope you do too. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to go from the kids to another topic that actually came through multiple questions this week on on this podcast, and that is the minor leaguers and what this all means for them. It's another voicemail. Hi, my name is Brendan from Louisville, Kentucky. I was just calling with regards to how minor league baseball will be affected by the potential of a, continue, of a continued lockout into a delayed season, seeing that minor league players are not um, under the Major League Baseball's Player Association. So would the minor leagues continue to start on time? Would they have some sort of abbreviated spring training with just the minor leaguers? Or, and if so, would that affect players on the 40-man roster? Are they considered under the Players Association? Or uh, would that continue as normal? Thanks for the great show and like a project. Brendan, I'm glad you asked this. The minor leagues will start on time. In fact, their spring training starts in a few days. And... Keep in mind, though, that what we're talking about are minor league players who are not on 40-man rosters, okay? So the minor leaguers who are on 40-man rosters, the best of them, honestly, they are part of the union, and they are covered in this lockout or affected by this lockout. 
So those are some of the players who are getting harmed the worst, at least in the opinion of some. Because if you think about it, these guys, a lot of the top prospects, didn't play at all in 2020, right? With the pandemic-shortened season, they were at the alternate sites. There was no minor league season. Last year, yes, they played, but here we are again with the disruption to what they're doing. And for any of those prospects you thought might make an impact in spring training, well, in a shortened spring training, which is this is going to be now at some level, it's going to be a shorter spring training, it's going to be more difficult for them to make that mark. Also, they've been unable to use team facilities for pre-camp work, or unable to talk to the organization's coaches. It's really having an adverse effect on them developmentally. And this is one of the many things about the lockout that sort of gets overlooked, although some have written about it. Joel Sherman of the New York Post has written about it at length. But we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot here because we're hurting our own players with this lockout, specifically these players who are on the 40-man roster and who are not yet major leaguers. These guys need to develop. They need to make their mark on coaches. They need to communicate and experience major league camp. Well, it's not going to happen in the same way, and they've already been affected this season because they have been unable to be in touch with those people and work out in the way that they should. So, again, not good. And these players also, in spring training, are likely to get less work than they might have otherwise because teams are going to have to get their main players ready. That's what's going to happen in the Major League Spring Training games. The big guys are going to have to play, and again, less opportunity for the minor leaguers on the 40-man roster. But the season itself, the minor league season itself, fear not. That is one thing that will take place and <laughs> take place on schedule. So you can at least head out to your minor league ballpark uh, this summer. All right, next question comes from Sam. He says, my mailbag question is about alternative playing opportunities. Suppose the unthinkable happens and it begins to look like a totally lost season due to the negotiations. Since it is the league that has locked out the players rather than it being a strike and prevented them from living out their contracts, would the players be allowed to sign on with indie ball teams or foreign leagues temporarily, then return to MLB when the lockout is over? Sam, great question, and actually I have the answer. At first I thought, mm, probably not, they're under contract, but according to a booklet that the union sent to players right before the lockout began, it was kind of a question and answer thing for guys to look at and see what they could do, couldn't do, how it was going to work, etc. I'll read you this. The question was, can locked out players play in an independent league during a stoppage? That's exactly the question you're asking, Sam. The answer was yes. The Players Association would support players playing in an independent league, including the Winter Leagues, during a lockout and challenge any attempts by the league to interfere. In recent lockouts involving the NHL and NFL players, the leagues have not sought to block players from playing in unaffiliated leagues. Next question was, can locked out players play in foreign leagues like Japan, Korea, etc.? And the answer again was yes. Same kind of thing. So that is something that has not come into play yet, but it could come into play. In 2004-2005, the a number of NHL players did play internationally during their lockout. So I would expect if this thing drags on, a player wants to do that, that player could. 
And I remember one thing that made it really easy for the NHL players is so many of them are actually from foreign countries, whether sure. it's Sweden or Czechoslovakia. And they actually just went home and, and played in Sweden and in Czechoslovakia, in Russia, wherever they're from. That That's a little different than it is here, although because all the, you know, the Dominican leagues are in the winter and, and anyway. Um, all right. Next question is another voicemail, Ken. This one comes from Nick. Hey, Ken. This is Nick in Portland, Oregon. I am a huge San Diego Padres fan. And I have a question about how you and the industry at large accurately evaluate whether a GM is good at his job. Uh, obviously, the reason I asked that question is because A.J. Preller is, in many ways, a maddening example for us as Padres fans to evaluate. He brought us Fernando, and he also brought us Eric Hosmer. And, and therein lies the paradox. How do we actually figure out if this guy is good at what he does? How do you people in the industry think about whether other guys who do this job are good at what they do? Thanks. Nick, first of all, I would advise you to go back to late September and read a story that I wrote in combination with Dennis Lynn and Eno Saris. It was about Preller and about his performance as a GM. And he is an interesting one to evaluate for sure because like any of us, he has strengths and he has weaknesses. His strengths are pretty clear. His work ethic is unsurpassed. He is incredibly creative with the deals that he makes, and he is absolutely unafraid. I love all those things about him, and those are great qualities to have for any person in baseball, anyone who wants to succeed as a GM. The issue with Preller has been forming a cohesive, coherent vision of what the roster should look like and putting that roster on the field. He's not really succeeded in building a coherent roster, and that's what we got at in our story. Kind of patching things together from time to time here and there, and it can get a little haphazard. And we also mentioned in that story that he keeps a very small circle, doesn't like dissent, etc., he wasn't happy with the story in certain ways, but we presented it the way we did after talking to a number of people, and I mean a high number of people in the sport. So how do you evaluate a GM? Well, he has to be a leader. And I'll point to another story that we did. This one was me and Nick Groke. It goes back to last spring about Jeff Breidich and the Rockies. He was a former Rockies GM and... He ultimately resigned about, I don't know, a month or so after the story. He had a lot of issues there, and leadership was one of them. Did not communicate well. That's something a GM has to be. He is the leader of the baseball operations, which encompasses a number of departments, right? Analytics, player development, pro scouting, amateur scouting. The GM has to be the one who cohesively puts that together. Eric Neander right now of the Rays might be the best at all of that. He is beloved by his employees and they seem to have a great relationship and what's the word I'm looking for here? Synergy, I guess would be the word. And that's the way they do it. Another thing that I look for in a GM today is the way he takes advantage of various markets. Free agency, trade, Non-roster players who are invited to spring training, you can go right down the line. Rule 5 draft would be another one. And Farhan Zaidi is a guy who has really succeeded in that regard. 
And again, this is a multifaceted job. There's so much that goes into it. It's difficult to evaluate other than wins and losses, but yes, there are other things that people look at as well. That's a great answer. That, that, that sums it all up. Check out all those stories um, as well. I'll post them on the podcast too here so you can just click on them in the description if you're on the app. Um, all right, Ken, this one's a long one, but and it's an email. So here we go. As someone who strongly supports the players and the union on various issues, I find myself disagreeing with the union's ideas on the competitive balance tax. I think the owners have ulterior motives for keeping the CBT close to where it is, but I also believe Manfred's claim that the union CBT proposals will decrease parity. It is hard to dispute that a large payroll correlates with postseason appearances. The Dodgers have made the playoffs nine years in a row. The Yankees have had 29 winning seasons in a row. Those teams are one and two in average payroll. We might as well congratulate both now on making the playoffs in 2022 and 23 and 24. The union wants to increase the CBT threshold by over 60 million over the next five years and significantly reduce luxury tax penalties. To me, the union's proposal on the CBT is begging for the Yankees and Dodgers and maybe Mets to have $300 million plus dollar payrolls and leave everyone else in the dust. I see how this can be good for the players, but it's terrible for MLB's competitive balance and the fans of 27 other teams. The Dodgers already have a massive competitive advantage through their $250 million a year local TV contract, and we could be removing constraints on that payroll. I fear the union's proposals would turn MLB into the Premier League, England Soccer League, in which it is dominated by the big six teams where only one non-big six team has cracked the top three in the standings since 2003. Am I wrong in this fear? How high of a priority is the CBT for the union? Do you see the owners showing more resistance to changing it? This is a great, great debate right now. And the points that you raise in your email are almost word for word points that the owners make with regard to the union's proposals. This is what they fear, or what they say they fear. CBT increasing to the point where teams feel much more comfortable spending in a big way. And who are those teams that might spend that way? Yeah, it's the big market teams. Now, I'll point out a couple of things here. One, spending money does not always equate to success in this sport. And yes, you point to the Yankees and Dodgers, no doubt. They've done great. Both teams, although the Yankees haven't won a World Series since 2009, they're certainly in the playoffs enough. The Dodgers won the World Series in 2020. But look at the two other teams in their respective markets. The Angels, they spend a ton of money. They never get anywhere. The Mets have spent a ton of money and really haven't gotten anywhere either. So I would dispute that by definition, raising the CBT is a problem because those teams suddenly get better. I don't know that history has shown that to be true. Now, let's go back to the original premise of the CBT, why it was implemented. Basically, the owners wanted a way to slow down the spending of certain teams like the Yankees and Dodgers, not curb it, slow it down. And they also originally intended for the thresholds to rise commensurate with industry revenue. Now, industry revenue has been disrupted in the past two years. We all know that, but it's also coming back. As long as the sport doesn't completely torpedo itself and hold out or have this lockout continue until, say, the All-Star break, this sport is going to come back just fine. There's plenty of revenue streams that are about to burst. 
you can point to the gambling, the uniform decal, the expanded playoffs, expansion down the line. There's going to be a lot of money here. So the question then becomes, all right, what is fair? Now, I would suggest that one of the union's biggest mistakes in the last collective bargaining negotiations, perhaps the biggest, was not getting the threshold higher. Remember, it's supposed to grow commensurate with industry revenues. They didn't. And that was a huge blunder in my perspective. So, yes, I believe the thresholds need to be higher and equally important, the penalties need to be reduced. This is something that union people say all the time. It's not just the thresholds, it's the penalties. These two things combine to make a de facto salary cap, which is not the idea, which is not something obviously the union wants. Now, from a competitive balance perspective, yeah, I have concerns about how that would work, but I also would like to see some of the teams that receive revenue sharing spend that money on major league payroll. Not something that always happens. And even with higher thresholds, teams have gotten really smart. They spend when they want to. The higher thresholds wouldn't force them to spend. And some teams would act as teams have, trying to be as efficient as possible. It just seems to me that the way the high-revenue teams have operated with the threshold in recent years, the Yankees, the Astros this year, others as well, they've treated it as, what I said earlier, a de facto cap, and that's not the idea. So in my opinion, yes, it needs to go higher, maybe not to the $245 million level that the union has proposed, but higher thresholds, lower penalties, give these teams at the top room to breathe. All right, we're going to go back to voicemail for the next question. Hi, Ken. This is Zach from Pittsburgh. One part of the game that interests me and that appears to be increasingly interesting to more and more fans is the umpiring. Still, it seems to me that few fans appreciate just how hard it is to become a Major League Baseball umpire and just how well the umpires actually perform day to day, both as a group and individually. I was wondering if you could speak to your views on the quality of umpiring overall in baseball and any experiences or other perspective you have on this part of the game. Zach, it's not only difficult to become an umpire, it is really difficult to succeed in the job as a major league umpire. And these guys, for the most part, are really, really, really good at their jobs. Now, I know fans look at the K-zones and whatever and get all apoplectic on Twitter and wherever else when they see a call that they perceive as missed. First of all, some of those K-zones, the angles aren't, exactly aligned with what the umpires are seeing so it distorts it that's a problem right there but overall these guys are in a job where any mistake is magnified to the max and i always tell this to people who might challenge me on a mistake i might make in an article or on television hey yes i make mistakes in my job i believe most people listening and most people reading me do that too and that doesn't excuse anything. You've got to be as good as you can in your job. But the umpires are in this incredibly public form. They are making split-second decisions on some of the best athletes in the world who are fast-twitch guys, right? They're guys throwing 95 to 100 miles an hour. They're guys hitting the ball incredibly hard down each line. All kinds of things going on. Fast guys stealing bases. So by and large, yeah. I think they do a great job, and that doesn't mean certain umpires could do better. Definitely certain umpires could do better, and we would like them to do better. 
But by and large, to be way too much is made of officiating in every sport. And whenever I see a call become such a focus of attention, I kind of cringe a little bit. Now, sometimes, yes, there are calls that can't decide games. There's no doubt about that. But I'll go back to the Jeffrey Mayer play, 1996 ALCS, Orioles and Yankees. You remember Jeffrey reached over the right field wall, home run. He probably interfered with it, maybe definitely interfered with it if you're an Orioles fan. And people in Baltimore, where I was working at the time, went crazy. Well, they were right. But in that game, the Orioles had gone 1 for 12 with runners in scoring position. So if they had ha- done their job, if they had succeeded earlier in the game, that play would not have been as significant. And that's kind of what I'm getting at. A team has to be good enough to put itself in a spot where an umpire's call is not going to wreck an outcome. No game has solely been decided by the umpires, that's for sure. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. All right. Uh, Brandon Thayer has the next question. Do you think MLB would ever adopt scheduling like the NHL and NBA where you play every team each year in keeping the current 162 game schedule? It would allow playing each interleague team twice, other two divisions six times, and then still leaving the 18 interdivision matchups. As a Braves fan, it would be great to see guys like Mike Trout every year at home instead of once every three to six years. Brandon, I'm going to act like a politician here and deflect the question. (laughs) Actually, I wouldn't put it that way. I'm going to answer it kind of in a different way. As currently constituted, baseball is not considering what you're suggesting, right? We have the rotating interleague schedules, and it goes about that way. But at some point in the near future, the league is going to expand to 32 teams from 30, and that's going to change things with regard to the schedule. It's going to create a lot of opportunity, actually. One thing I expect to happen with the 32-team league would be geographic realignment. So you have it more logically based, right? That makes a lot of sense. Also could happen that the American League and National League, as we know them, as an extension of geographic realignment, might no longer exist the way we knew. So these things are possible. A shorter regular season with expanded playoffs, maybe 154 games, also would be possible with a 32-team league. Jason Stark has written a lot about all these issues. And then the question becomes, unbalanced schedule or balanced? Well, unbalanced is probably preferable due to the emphasis on winning a division. 
And at the same time, Rob Manfred is on record as saying a more balanced schedule might make some sense too. Fairness question. So I don't know where it's going. I'm not trying to deflect, Brett, that I'd like to answer your question directly, but I don't know that we're going to see every team play every other team every year, even with a 32-team league. Okay, final question comes from Brian. While we wait out the offseason, when teams travel, what do their hotel situations look like? Does every team have some brand of hotel they contract with? Do they tend to be super high-end, like Four Seasons, fairly nice, like Hilton's, etc.? Rookies have to share rooms, question mark. Any fun stories that you can share, Ken? Brian, they're not staying at Super Sixes. <laughs> and for the most part, yes, luxury hotels, Four Seasons types, uh, high-end Marriott's, wh- whatever the hotel in a particular city might be. And back earlier in my career, I'm talking 1987, 88, I was working for the Baltimore Evening Sun. Now, for those who are young, evening papers don't really exist anymore, but they used to. They would come out in the afternoon, and that was the paper I worked for in Baltimore. It was one that came out in the afternoon. So I would travel with the team on their plane because I could make deadline even if I got on their plane and flew home that night. So they fly generally on charters, and they're nice charters. Some teams have their own planes. And then also the hotels, yeah, they're nice And the only one that I can think of, the only interesting story I can think of, revolves around one that fans might be aware of, that Fister Hotel in Milwaukee. (laughs) Over the years, I can't remember who wrote this story, but maybe it was Joe Lemire. Somebody wrote a story about how players believe the Fister Hotel in Milwaukee, P-F-I-S-T-E-R, is haunted. I swear players actually believe this. And there are some who went on the record talking about those stories. I stayed in the Fister because often earlier in my career when I was on the beat, I would stay at the team hotels. It's different now. Writers don't travel with the team. That's not happening. And writers don't stay at the team hotels either. That's not happening. Back then, it was a little bit more collegial. The traveling secretary of a team actually might book the writers into the team hotel. But in all my time staying at the Fister, I have never witnessed a goblin or a ghost or anything to that effect. But there are players who swear, I mean swear, that that place is spooked. If you Google Fister Hotel Haunted, it comes up with all... I had never heard this, Ken, so I just did that real quick. It comes up with all sorts of stories and articles that have been (laughs) written over the years about that place. So uh, that is fun. All right, good stuff. And I think that more than uh, answered Brian's question as far as some fun stories to tell. Um, That's it for this week. Great questions all around. If you want to get involved next time around, again, our number is 646-543-7072. You can also email tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Keep coming back to the Athletic Baseball Show all week long. Later this week, Derek Van Riper, Eno Saris, and Britt Giroli, they're now part of the feed. They're calling their show The 3-0 Show, and they're back on Thursday. And then Friday, it'll be DVR and Keith Law with their normal show. So plenty more baseball content to come this week. If you want to read all the great writers at The Athletic, Check out all the stuff. You can do it for 33% savings on an annual subscription. Go to theathletic.com slash baseball show for that. Ken, hopefully we have some good news in a couple weeks. <laughs> I hope so, Tim. <laughs> but I would bet the house. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will certainly be 
this much closer to opening day, if nothing else, and the pressure level will go up. We'll talk to everybody again then.